Welcome to The Mean Mind. Thanks for joining us today, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Second time behind the microphone. The yep. first one was one of the early days. Yep. You, were, you were a pioneer with me. Um, those two haven't... We actually did two episodes, one where you interviewed me and one where I interviewed you. That right. was kind of fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought it'd be, I thought it'd be a good idea to have you back on the show to get a better, a better recording done where we have a little more, um, basically just where I have a little better hosting skills. Cause I think I kind of failed on the first one. Um, so yeah, I think it'd be good to just start out with kind of jumping into your childhood and and what it was like growing up in louisiana is that's if is it was it louisiana well i moved around a lot i didn't move to louisiana until like eighth grade um prior to that i moved i lived in the pacific northwest and i actually lived here in hood river two separate times as a child as well right I, that's the thing is your life has been very dynamic yeah so i forget it's like I go filling in the gaps, but it's easy to forget. So yeah. what, so what, like you moved to Louisiana in the middle of middle school or something, right? And then you spent high school there? Yeah, I was like 13 or 14 when we moved to Louisiana. Um, and then actually, uh, to throw a little, another like uh, stick in the tire, um, we, I moved up to Aberdeen, Washington for most of my junior year in high school as well to help take care of my grandparents when they got sick mm. um so always just bouncing back and forth between the south and the pacific northwest where's aberdeen aberdeen is about an hour southwest of olympia um by the coast so there it's uh, in grays harbor county and there's just a little little harbor that it's like always gray and raining there so uh. grays harbor. it's a little logging town is it but it's on the coast um it's probably like 20 minutes from the beach oh, okay yeah not very far um if you ever heard of ocean shores it's it's about 20 minutes inland of ocean shores yeah okay and like quinault quinault casino mm. pretty close to that too what was that like helping your grandparents was that pretty pretty cool or was it hard or yeah i mean a little bit of both like i was still going to school and stuff too um wasn't anything crazy my grandma had alzheimer's and that was what prompted the move up there well actually <clears throat> what prompted the move up there was i was like a little shit in school down in louisiana Got in trouble there, and then it like it just so happened at the same time my grandparent, my grandma, got sick, um, and so I was like, oh, I'll just avoid this and move up there and help take care of grandma. And so did you move up there alone, or like, or like you were the only one? If like your parents didn't move up there, just you? Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah, I moved in with my aunt and uncle. So uh, my grandma was staying at my aunt and uncle's house once she got out of the hospital because she had fallen and uh, I think she broke her ankle. She had like a, a plate put in her ankle and that was what prompted that so when she got out of there she moved in with the, the aunt and uncle my grandpa sold their house in trout lake and moved up to aberdeen as well and then we all was it hard to kind of establish an, a new a new nucleus kind of the, like a new like i mean obviously they're not new family but as far as like living with them it was new was it hard to like or did it just did it just work well um, it worked pretty well. I, I had actually lived with that aunt and uncle for like a year or so prior to that as well. So it wasn't anything super new at that point. Mm. Um, the, the only new thing was, you know, grandma having Alzheimer's and right going crazy every once in a while. But other than that. And then what prompted the move back to Louisiana? 
I assume um, that's what you did next. Yeah, once my once my <laughs> grandparents passed, um, there there was really like no reason for me to stay up in Aberdeen anymore, mm. and so I went back down to Louisiana and finished off high school there. And what was high school like down there in Louisiana? Yeah, very different than up here for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it the the curriculum. I would say just like the quality of schooling was less at the school that I went to. I can't speak for other schools down there. Um, and I think that what was interesting for me is that like I I was a minority being a white person, especially being a redhead. Um, the majority of the school was black there, which um, obviously is like fine. Like I had plenty of friends and stuff, but it was just it was just different. Like you kind of get a different perspective going like the culture is different. Um, everything's just different. Right. It's like, it's like, it's, it's literally like living in a different country. Um, and that's, what's I think so cool about America. Like every corner of America is, is like its own little country. And what, what was it like positives or negatives that you were seeing, or was it just contrast and you weren't really judging it in terms of positive or negative? I would say both. It, it's just different. They're, 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 I wouldn't say it's like better or worse than it is up here. It, it's, it's not even the same thing. It's like apples to oranges. Right. You know, they're both great. They're just different. Hmm. And after high school, did you stick around or did you, did you immediately move? Like what town were you in? Um, I lived in a town called Karen Crow, which is a suburb of Lafayette, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say after high school, I stuck around for probably like two years. Yeah, because when I was 19, I moved over to Galveston and uh, started doing the custom wood furniture business over there. Mm. And what, how did you get into that? How what prompted so that? my mom's ex had a furniture business there and he was building furniture and, and in the summers, sometimes in like winter break and stuff, I would go over there and, and just like work with him and build like picnic tables and stuff, just like really easy things. And he wanted to get out of it and move back up here to the Pacific Northwest where, uh, I don't know why he wanted to do that actually thinking about it. I'm not really sure, but anyway, he wanted to do that, and uh, so I just saw an opportunity to maybe take it over, and yeah, just like went and bought him out and tried it out. That's pretty cool. Was that was that a pretty easy process? Did you have to convince him to sell it to you, or like <laughs> took a little bit of convincing, but it wasn't too crazy. It was kind of kind of good for him. And I'm curious, in high school, like, did you? Did you have an idea? Were you thinking about your future and like what you wanted to do when you were older very much? Or were you just having fun all. and just Not like. No, I was partying, smoking weed, <clears throat> doing all the stuff. Like I, I was not concerned about my future whatsoever in high school. Do you look back on that? And uh, like, how do you reflect on that? Do you, do you think about it much? Or is it just kind of like, did, were they good times? Were that, was it enjoyable? Did you like. Did you have a lot of fun and like feel like you took advantage of the time you had to have fun at least? Or like what what was that like? I don't really think about it a lot. I definitely like at the time enjoyed it. Um, looking back at it, I do think I could have been a little more efficient with my time. Right. I, I think I would be a little better off if I hadn't spent so much time fucking off for lack of a better term, you know, but I think that the culmination of all those experiences is what made me who I am today. And I wouldn't trade that for anything. Right. So. And what point did you start doing jujitsu? I was 17. So you were in high school? Uh, yeah, like last few months of high school, first few months out of it. And how did you hear about jujitsu? 
Well, so I, I was boxing with a buddy in like some dude's garage mm. for like 20 bucks a month. And like my dad didn't even know I, uh, I signed the waiver myself and brought it back. And which is why I require parents to come in and sign the waiver here uh, <laughs> in person <laughs> because I've been that kid before. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, the MMA scene was starting to grow at the time. And so I was like, Oh, I want to be an MMA fighter, you know, and yeah. gladiators Academy, uh, was a gym in Lafayette ran by Tim Crater, who was an ex UFC fighter. Um, Dustin Poirier came from that gym. A lot of notable names have, had come out of there even by the time that I joined. Okay. And so I was like, Oh, that's like five minutes away from my house. I might as well go do that. And so I did the MMA thing for a little while wasn't the biggest fan of it. it it's fun and it's great it's not like getting punched in the face you know and i uh, just kind of fell in love with jujitsu and stuck with that from there so you started boxing then you started doing muay thai or something like that or yeah so when i went to gladiators academy i was doing uh muay thai jujitsu and like mma classes so those classes are where you'll combine the two gotcha um so using like strikes to set up takedowns using strikes to set up submissions all of that kind of stuff how long did you follow the mma path for like a year not very long mm. yeah was it fun like well like like aside from getting punched in the head did you yeah. enjoy the mma yeah yeah i'm i'm still really fascinated with it i i really enjoy it i think that jujitsu just clicked a little better for me for some reason it just fits my personality better hmm yeah um and who was there like a did you have a mentor in those early days in either mma or jujitsu or someone that told you like said hey come check out the gym or did you just research it online and just like like did someone kind of guide you or were you just feeling your own way and kind of finding your own path just kind of feeling my own way yeah, when I joined, I would say a combination of um, Coach Josh and this guy named Christian were like my biggest mentors at the gym, but I found my own way to the gym. Right. Yeah. And once you, and were they pretty instrumental in your development once you were at the gym and being guides for developing you as an athlete and as a jujitsu player? Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Was that pretty like would you say that that was pretty key or was that like um like was that a big was it big or was it like was it personal was it did it extend beyond jujitsu and being like a role model or was it really just like on the mat technical guidance both both for sure um there there are a lot of translation like jujitsu translates to life really well and so a lot of the lessons that i learned through grappling from those men taught me a lot of life lessons just inherently um and we also had some some really powerful life just talks like talks about life itself and and like how to be a man and how to conduct yourself in society and, and all those types of things did you guys do stuff like outside the gym either either like one-on-one or in small groups or in big groups like did you guys have a lot of community in the gym decent i wouldn't say it was as community centric as what i'm striving for with my gym currently I, I i think that like i had a few friends that i hung out with outside of the gym from there but there were no not many big community get-togethers other than like belt promotions and and stuff like that right and did you like did you look up to those guys is that why you listened to them why did you give them the time of day to let them kind of kind of received their wisdom yeah i definitely looked up to those guys they were badasses 
you know, and, and like at that time in my life, I was just like a little punk kid. And, and that was what I valued for some reason at that time in my life. I just looked up to people that could kick my ass, mm. you know, and, and, and those guys, you know, like Josh, um, and, and Tim, especially they, they were both professional MMA fighters. And so I, I have a lot of respect for the type of person that's willing to go out there and just put it all out on the line. It's a dangerous business. It's scary. People don't realize how bad every single strike hurts when you're in that fight. They don't realize how hard it is to just get up when you've been punched in the face 50 times and kicked in the leg 30 times. You know, they don't, they don't realize how hard it is even just to make it into the cage. Um, the work that those guys put in in their fight camps leading up to it, cutting weight, guarantee 90% of humanity wouldn't be able to survive a weight cut like what those guys do, let alone go fight somebody who's also one of the best in the world 24 hours later. I've never understood what what motivates people to do that. I have immense respect for it because I can imagine how hard it is. But do you feel like it was growing up where you did that kind of made you open to like seeing fighting as a path that you would want to follow? Was there a lot of was there violence around in that area or was was there like was it kind of a macho culture or like was there anything that kind of like, like what would make him, what makes a man want to fight? That's a really good question. I think initially for me, yeah, like in, in high school down there, I think I can't really speak for like up here as far as high school goes. I only did, you know, like not even a full year of school in the Pacific Northwest in high school, but um, down there fighting was a big thing. Like everybody wanted to know who the baddest. Like dude. in high school, in the school, yeah. or like in the social. Yeah. Scene. Everybody wanted to know who was like the biggest badass in high school. Right. And, and they valued that. And that was something that, that, that was just really prevalent there. So I think that that definitely influenced it. And, and I think what, what made me really stick with it is the depth of technicality in fighting. Right. Um, people, there, there are a lot of things happening that people who don't understand the sport don't see. And that to me is just extremely fascinating. But you were not involved in the fighting. It doesn't really sound like you were Yeah. You weren't the guy, like, were you picking fights before you got into MMA and all that? No. Were you the, cause no. like here in the, in the high school, I knew guys that were picking fights on the street and that's why they got into boxing or MMA or whatever they got into. Mm -hmm. But you sounds like that, that wasn't you. You weren't the guy like, Hey, maybe meet me behind the, the baseball field at, at 4 PM. And <laughs> no, no, that wasn't me at all. So do you think that you would have like, was, was jujitsu and that it sounds like that was a big change for you kind of like starting to grow up and take, take life a little more seriously. Do you think that was a big reason for why you were confident enough to take the, take the step of uh, acquiring the business from your, was it your stepdad, did you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Um, it, it, jiu -jitsu, I think one of the most valuable lessons jiu-jitsu has given me, and one of the earliest lessons I learned from it, is that failure is just simply a part of the journey. It's just simply a part of life you you're in, in jujitsu it's it's like one of the harshest forms of that where you're just literally getting beat up you're getting choked out you're getting like your arm basically broken unless you tap right you, you're having to concede to somebody and admit like all right you you could have just like killed or maimed me right and and when you first start as, as you're aware it just happens you don't understand how vulnerable you are until you grapple with somebody who's good at at 
at wrestling or jujitsu or judo or sambo or any of those sports you just don't understand the amount of control that another human can actually have over you mm. and how helpless you actually are against somebody who understands how to um, just how to like handle another human body and manipulate another human body right and i liked what you said about taking your arm to the point of breaking it but then you tap because it, it takes you it gets you comfortable with that fine line of failure but not catastrophic failure which would be like breaking your arm or like full-on bankruptcy or going to jail or, or things like this right there's a fine line between fail, having your business fail and going to jail or right. you know right and get it, it it makes you comfortable which is like what it takes to to start a business and to go for it so was it i imagine it was still scary still daunting like did you do you remember what your decision process was like or how long did you think about it before you pulled the trigger? Or what was I, didn't that even, like? I didn't even think twice, dude. I just fucking <clears throat> sent it. I, I was completely naive. I was your typical, you know, like late teenager, still partying and smoking weed, thinking that being a business owner meant that you had a bunch of money and you didn't have to work very hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, fuck yeah, I'll move to like a beach town and go make a bunch of money and not work anymore and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just going to like live the dream, you know, and quickly realized that that was not the case. But I've also always been the type of person that if, if there's something that needs to be done, I just do it because somebody's got to do it. And it just doesn't matter who, who does it or how it gets done. It just simply has to get done. And, um, so I, I, I very soon quit partying, um, didn't quit smoking weed, but quit like going out to the bars and stuff and just buckled down and grinded for like two years. So you pretty quickly came around and you were like, all right, I, was I see like reality. Two weeks in, I was like, oh shit, this is <laughs> not what I signed up for. What, what caused it? Did you, were you, did you have commitments to sales that you weren't able to fulfill? Or do you remember like what, when you, when that, oh shit moment happened of like, like what instigated you to be like, oh crap, I got to get my stuff together. Well, like the first week I just realized that, oh, well, I don't have anybody working for me. I'm the only one here. And there's a <laughs> lot of shit that has to get done. Like I, you know, there, there are is bookkeeping that has to happen. There are toilets that need to be cleaned. There's a shop floor that needs to be swept. There's furniture that needs to be built. There's wood that needs to be cut. There's wood that needs to be sanded. There's wood that needs to be stained. There are chairs that need to be assembled. There are screws that need to be bought. There are materials that need to be purchased. Like that's all on me now. And I, I just hadn't really realized that until like a weekend. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh, there's nobody else to just hit. Like before, whenever I'd go over there, the stuff was just there and I just like put put it together, or, like cut some wood. You know, it wasn't, I never really saw like the business back end side of it and, and how all of that stuff actually got to the shop, you know? Did, did he try and prepare you or try and Not warn you? Not at all. He threw me to the wolves. Do you think he knew that you could handle it, but he also knew that it would be a big I don't think he really change. gave a shit, honestly. Plain. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. We got the airport right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he cared. He just like basically Sparta kicked me off the boat into the freaking ocean. <laughs> I was like, have fun. Peace out. <laughs> Do you feel like you got a good deal on the business? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what, then what, what the, what was the path of the business over the next few years? Did it grow and go well? Did you figure it out? And yeah, I would say I figured it out pretty quickly. I, I was doing really well. Um, so the part that we didn't mention before is that I went into business with my mother. She was a bookkeeper slash accountant for like basically my whole life. 
And so when when I took over the the woodworking business, she was handling all the books for me and helping in the shop as well a little bit. And yeah, definitely figured it out pretty quickly. Uh, business started growing um, over over a couple of years. We did pretty well, and then just some family stuff happened. You know, working with family is difficult, and uh, decided to wash my hands of it and come back up to the Pacific Northwest for whatever reason. I just wanted a different a change of scenery. You know, I think part of it was moving around so much in my childhood. I was like kind of antsy staying in one place for so long. And so I just wanted a, a change. Mm, do you still feel that way? Do you still get antsy? Not anymore. I, I'm much, much happier where I'm at today, both physically like in the world, but also with myself as a human. So when things started going better at the business, like who were your customers? Were you selling to individuals or were you selling to businesses? Mostly individuals. Uh, Galveston is an island in Texas. So it's surrounded by water. It's a beach town, lots of beach houses, lots of vacation rentals, stuff like that. So that was a really big market for me. We had a line of outdoor furniture that we would sell. Adirondack chairs, rocking chairs, deck chairs, stuff like that. Tables, whatnot. And so that was huge. But then also there was a little niche market for like custom heirloom quality furniture. So um, dining room tables, buffet tables, entertainment centers, kitchen islands, stuff like that. Um, and was it all custom or was it like, did yeah. you have standard stuff a little bit that people would kind of build off or like how would so i had some like reclaimed lumber that i would find sometimes for a good deal um we would get like we got this like bleacher wood from a middle school uh, made some tables out of that and put it on the showroom sold those um, we would get like old reclaimed they they used uh primarily longleaf pine for framing down there back in the day and so after hurricane ike hit there were just a you know just a shit ton of remodels on the island and so everybody was just throwing away these like true two by true four like super tight grain longleaf pine boards like two by fours two by sixes two by eights two by twelves and they're all roughs on true dimension which you don't get anymore right like everything you buy at home depot is nominal so it says two by four but it's actually inch and a half by three and a half right right and, and that's because they're skimping you no, it's because they, they cut it out of the log at two inches by four inches, but in order to get, once you dry it, the wood moves. So in order to get like a flatter, more uniform board, you have to join and plane it. Right. And you lose some material in that process. Right. Yeah. But back in the day, they just rough cut it and threw it into the houses and, and all the stuff was old growth. So it was super tight grain patterns and it was just really beautiful. And so I would go around to job sites and just pick up a bunch of that. And I had like this ridiculous stack of just like old beat up lumber. And I so when I was short on custom orders, I would build just cookie cutter, you know, th three by eight, you know, dining room tables, stuff like that, and just throw them out on the floor for sale. And so much less of that, mostly custom orders, though. Right. So you didn't really have a lot of stock, but when you had extra time or materials, you might put something out there and it would often sell. And then, right. And what, so long leaf pine, what other kinds of woods were you using? Like specifically, what kind of woods were you using for outdoor stuff? Did you have to do, use a lot of treatment for weather or, or were you using woods that were kind of good to go out of the gate and you didn't need as much treatment or what was, what were you doing there? So, uh, the cheapest option that we had was cedar. Um, just Western red cedar. 
So cedar is naturally just good outdoors. That's what you use for decks and fences and whatnot. It's a little bit more expensive than like pressure treated fir or pine, but um, it doesn't have the harsh chemicals that pressure treated wood would. Um, and then the next tier up was cypress, which is a little bit harder than cedar. Cedar's super soft, so you can like dent it with your fingernail pretty easily, right? Cypress, not as soft, still a softer wood, a little bit more expensive, um, doesn't accept stains as well and whatnot, but still doesn't have the the harsh chemicals that pressure treated would and then the the top tier that we would sell would be uh sepa mahogany mm. and so that is a hardwood it is amazing outdoors um but it's also extremely expensive mm. and one of the things that made it extremely expensive was that you always had to buy a bunch of extra because you couldn't buy just like a five quarter by six by 12 and it, it was all like random width random length so i had to like go to houston handpick all my boards, come back, join them, plane them, dimension them myself, and then start building from there. Did you ever get much help? Yeah, so at one point, I had two guys working for us in the shop, helping clean, helping sand, helping stain, just like the, the pretty mindless tasks. And do you have any idea where the cypress came from? Like where it was grown? Uh, probably probably louisiana i don't, I don't know okay yeah, who knows yeah. i know I, cypress is super popular in louisiana and i i don't think you're allowed to log it anymore i think a lot of cypress nowadays is harvested from like bottoms of swamps and lakes and whatnot oh yeah there may be some areas where you can you can log it um i'm not super sure but for some reason i feel like i've heard that somewhere hmm. yeah I, I hadn't heard of cypress until i was down in chile because they use a lot of it down there because mm -hmm. it grows they have a ton of cypress trees down there also maybe it's imported from somewhere like that yeah that's why i was curious i didn't know yeah because i hadn't i had never seen one here but i also haven't spent much time in the south so who knows yeah so then business <clears throat> business started going well were you training jujitsu along the way mm -hmm. and where were you training at uh there's a gracie baja in what is it webster i think webster texas texas city somewhere like that it's like a suburb of houston basically so i would drive like 35 45 minutes each way to get there and go train i was trying i made it I, I i did like a minimum of three days a week but i would try to make it more if i could right and what what kind of what was your development like there was it were you advancing quickly in jujitsu were you making friends or were you advancing as a person or I think my jujitsu journey was kind of stagnant in that stage of my life. I was so overwhelmed with the business and whatnot. And also I didn't really fit into the culture at Gracie Baja. They're, they're pretty strict in a lot of ways that I'm not a fan of, especially for paying so much money to train there. Um, their, their memberships were like two something a month and, and which is like reasonable for a high level gym. But also if I'm paying you over $200 a month to attend classes, I feel like I should be allowed to use the bathroom whenever I like. As and opposed to... When... Having to ask permission <laughs> to go use the bathroom as an adult. Even if it wasn't during class or just during class? Just during class. Like, you, you could use it if you showed up and, and class hadn't started yet. But during okay. class, you had to ask for permission. And then you also had to wait for permission to, to re-enter the mat space. Right. And sometimes the, there was, like, a weird ego or power trippy thing where, like, the instructor would just, like, look at you and then look away and not wave you on the mat. <laughs> And so, like, th there was literally one time where I stood there for 20 minutes just, like, waiting while everybody's drilling. And my drilling partner had to go, like, find a group of three, which made it inconvenient for all of them, all because the instructor was, like, 
not happy that I decided I needed to go pee during class. Right. And I, I, that was kind of one of the final straws of, of that whole situation. Where I was like, fuck this, dude. Like, I pay you $240 a month to attend classes, and I just so happened to pee, had to pee. Yeah, sorry, I'm hydrated. Yeah, right. like, what? <laughs> and, yeah, and so you're wasting, like, I mean, 20 minutes is, like, you know, 30% of class time. So I just missed out on 30% of class because you... Right. And you're just wasting time. It's not like yeah. you're doing something else useful. Yeah, and I'm like, like hindering other people's training because now the partner that I had had to go find a group of three and take away from their time. And now all three of them are like having a suboptimal training session because my instructor doesn't want to let me back on the mat. And that, that just didn't sit well with me. And then there was also just like, you know, they, they treated people differently based on their belt rank. And, and I think that that is one of my least favorite parts of martial arts as a whole. I think that that's all too common. I think, you know, just because somebody's a white belt in something, I think that that, honestly, that deserves more respect than somebody who's like a brown or black belt in something. Like, it takes more balls to start it than it does to stick with it. You know, walking through that door the first day is the most intimidating part of doing any martial art. Right. And, and so if you're going to, like, treat somebody... Like they're an idiot because they haven't learned this thing that nobody has never has ever taught them. Well, what kind of person are you? You know, and, and that was the energy in that that gym. But I kind of sucked it up and dealt with it because it was the highest level training available in the area. Right. And so I was like, well, you know, I guess I can deal with it, train with a world champion. But then I soon realized that just because you you can say you're a world champion doesn't mean you're a good teacher. Right. And they were horrible teachers. I didn't learn much from that gym. Interesting. Do you feel like that that macho or not macho culture, but the ranking status culture? Do you feel like there's positives to it? Do you see any reasons why they would do things that way? I think having a hierarchy is valuable. I think that there there always needs to be a clear leader in the room in in any like organized situation, right? So in in a jujitsu gym, for instance, you're in class. There needs to be somebody who, when they speak up, everybody quiets down. And they navigate and they, they direct people and they, they make sure that we stay on task and we accomplish things that need to be accomplished, right? Um, I don't think that treating people poorly due to the hierarchy, I think there's no value in that. Everybody's human. Just because you haven't reached the rank that I've reached yet doesn't mean you won't and it doesn't mean you're less of a like a human being than i am you're not lesser than me you just don't have the experience in this one specific area of life that i have which means nothing right Do so you, is it almost more of a burden than a reward to have a higher belt and that it's not that you're rewarded with the ability to command people and tell people what to do but you're burdened with leading the group when in order of this hierarchy like they were they were using it kind of more as like a a reward where it's like oh now i'm this high level guy and i get to like command you around as opposed to this burden that's like okay now i have to serve the new people i have to serve the group and um organize them and, and show them the right way to do things but it's not it's not really a reward it's kind of a burden i think that depends i think it's very personal Right. So it depends on the person who, who is getting promoted and, and who earns that rank. Um, there are plenty of gyms out there where you can go from white to black belt and never have to teach a class. And that's totally fine. 
right? That it, it's not like that's a re- that should be a requirement to achieve black belt in anything. I think that definitely the the higher rank you get the more the the like upper belts in the room start looking at you like hey man you want to teach a class or something you know they'll like nudge you in that direction but if you don't that's not going to hinder your progression and it's not going to offend anybody either not just not everybody needs to teach classes you know if, mm. if you're not into it that's just your thing and so i don't think that it's necessarily a burden um i think that the people that are taking on that responsibility want to take on that responsibility right the, the, we got to remember that like martial arts is something that we get to do we're not forced to do anything we pay our membership we show up we train we we choose to spend our time enjoying this hobby around people that we enjoy being with it's not something that is is necessarily required of me therefore i don't view it as a burden right i guess the reason that burden came to mind is because it from a from this perspective of controlling and organizing a group it seems and maybe it's a naive assumption but it seems easier to use like a dictatorship system where it's like you can't come on the mat unless i tell you to you can't do this and you can't do anything unless i tell you to that seems easier from a how much effort you have to put in to control the group versus when you let people when you let people do whatever they want within a certain rule set, they you're you're they have more burden on themselves to respect the culture and respect the dynamic that you've established. But it's it's a little bit harder, maybe at least at first, to establish how things do how things operate and what when you do need to ask permission to do something or where those lines of respect are, because it's not as cut and dry, just like get on the mat, ask, get off the mat, ask, just like mm-hmm. everything ask. It's more, you have to, you have to be a human. You can't just be a computer or, or like, I don't know if, if that makes any sense, but um, I guess it, it, I can see how it's, it's like when you run, like, I don't know if you've seen the Stanford prison experiment where they do like, they set up a fake prison and like, you know, if this room was a jail cell, they have someone just a volunteer come in the jail cell and then they have guards that are volunteers. And within like, I don't know, a few hours, the guards are like abusing the prisoners. And I, I, it, it's just easier. It's human nature to start abusing and controlling and obsessing over your subject. So I guess that's why it seems like it's easier to do it's it's a natural tendency and it takes more effort and it's a burden not to do those things you have to you're going to have more opportunities where you have to explain to the the student why they can't do something or give an explanation as to what the rules are because it depends a little bit on context and they have to be alive and think for themselves um so i don't know i I guess i don't know if that makes any sense to you or do you think that they resort to abusing their subjects due to it being easier or do you think that it's human nature for us to take advantage of power and to seek power i guess i don't know that there's a difference because their goal is to at least they think their goal i think based on the experiment is their goal is to maintain order in the prison in this experiment so don't you think that gives them a sense of like i have power over these people right 
I, I get to command these people. They, they have to listen to me. They have to do what I tell them to do. And, and don't you think that, I mean, what, what about like every dictatorship in, in human history? What happens? Somebody gets a little bit of power and then they seek more and then they seek more and then they seek more. And then all of a sudden they have all the power and you have the fucking Holocaust. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. So basically, I think I agree. All I'm saying is it's easier to seek that power, basically. And it's a burden. It's a burden to organize people without being at least up front. It's I think it's easier in the beginning. If you take a more of a democratic system, if you will, it, or sorry, it's harder up front. If you take more of a democratic system, like in a gym, you let people let, let the culture kind of or, organically take uh, organize. But then in the long run, it'll be a little easier because you'll like the entire group will help help regulate that structure. Whereas if you take a dictatorial approach where you set all the rules and tell people exactly what they can and can't do all the time, it'll be easier up front, but in the long run, you're going to be doing that the entire time. Um, so anyways, that was, that was a long tangent into yeah. philosophy of, yeah. of running a gym. But, um, so that was kind of the last day for you there. And then, and then you moved on, like, yeah, it wasn't done. the last day, but that was when I decided, like, all right, I'm probably not going to train here much longer. Right. Yeah. That's kind of too bad. And then what did you keep training before you moved up here? Was that your last gym? I took probably a two or three month break before I moved up here. And, and uh, the don't get me wrong, the, the whole like hierarchical thing at that gym wasn't the only reason that I quit training there. It was also just like things are getting stressful with the business and in between me and my mother and all that stuff. So I, I just, I had a lot, there were a lot of combining factors that culminated in me quitting that. And, and then shortly thereafter moving up here. Right. What did you have much of a support group while you were going through all that? Did you have friends or, or any other family or were you kind of just carrying all that weight on your back? Carrying it on myself. Yeah. And, and that was my fault. I, I didn't really seek many friends when I was there. I kind of kept to myself. I, I had a lot of weight on my shoulders in the stress of, of running a business as a, you know, 19 or 20 year old kid, just not really knowing what I even wanted to do with my life and, and, and all of these, these combining factors. And, and so, um, I, I definitely just shut down a bit and kept to myself and just put my head down and worked and then went and did my jujitsu and then went to sleep and did the same thing the next day. And that was basically my life for like two years. Mm. And do you feel like you do the same thing today? Do you still take it all on your own back or do you feel like you have more of a support group that you've kind of established? I have much more of a support group. I think I still hold a lot on myself. I, I take, I take extreme ownership of, you know, everything that's going on, but I, I have an amazing group of people supporting me and doing what I'm trying to do. So, mm. and when you got here, I always, I've heard this story like 10 times from you and it, it, every time I remember it, a detail that I had forgotten or you tell me a new detail, but what did you, what were you initially doing? You came to Hood River, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. what were you initially doing? Uh, so I, I had gotten a job with Crestline Construction. They're a civil contractor in, in like excavations so doing like foundations and utility work. Um, but so actually the first two weeks that I lived here, they didn't, they had hired me, but one of their jobs got shut down for some reason. There's like some weird political stuff going on. 
And so they couldn't actually put me to work. So I went and did some rebar tying for a guy that my uncle would contract out to tie rebar because my uncle owns a concrete company here. And so for two weeks, I did that. And then once Crestline's job started back up, they sent me out there and I worked for them for about three years. What is rebar tying? So in a, a concrete slab, you reinforce it with rebar throughout the, the slab. And right. so basically, um, when an engineer designs a platform, they will design a grid of rebar that needs to float within that slab. Right. And so you go in and you tie the rebar with like tie wire. Um, so it's just like the soft, like small gauge wire that you just tie every joint with. So that it doesn't shift as you pour the concrete in. And so it maintains that grid so that it right. keeps the structure that it needs to support whatever's going to go on top of it. And were you, I know that sometimes they put it in tension, they preload the rebar before pouring the concrete. Always. Oh, always. Yeah. So On bigger projects, like there, there are some, like if you do, you know, like a little tiny like stair landing or something, you can maybe get away with like wedging it in there. But um, most any, like any professional project, they're going to set the rebar before the concrete comes. And what are the, that's like... In, on a smaller scale project that seems kind of hard like how do they how do they what do those machines look like do, are they like anchoring into the ground with big stakes or something or like how do they how do they preload the rebar oh you you just carry it out there and set it on they call them dobies they're just like little, these, these little concrete squares they're like either, they do like one by one or two by two or three by three inch squares and so you basically go out there and just like lay lay all your rebar out and then you just pick it up and like build the grid by hand. So nothing's really staked into the ground necessarily. Oh, I guess I, I was talking when I said preload, like intention, I meant like pulling on it while the concrete is wet and while the concrete is setting. And then once it's set, you let go and it puts the concrete in compression. That's what I was getting at. Like I, I'm not sure I, I'm visioning. So basically what happens is you tie your rebar grid and then the form gets built around the the area. Right. Or the form gets built and then you tie your rebar either way. Um, and then they just pour concrete over it. Right. Okay. And whatever yeah, happens, we're, we're happens. We're talking about, yeah, two two separate things, I think. Okay. Um. So did you have experience in construction before you got that job? A little bit like framing. And painting and stuff, nothing, nothing crazy, nothing like what I was doing. Was it hard to get the job? A crossline? Yeah. No, I had it before I even came up here. I did like a phone interview. And do you think yeah. they just needed work, or did you fit the bill based on your experience, or probably a little bit of both? I think that it, getting a job in construction is not difficult. Basically, if if you don't drool during your interview, they'll probably hire you. Right. Um. You don't you don't need many prerequisite skills to be a laborer in any industry. So, um, I think that that was that, and then. Uh, Maybe it helped a little bit that my uncle knew the people there, but I, I feel like it didn't because when I went in for my interview, the guy did a really actually great impression of my uncle. And so when they called him, I put him down as a reference. They called me like, look, man, I haven't seen him since I was, since he was like six years old. He's fucking 21 right now. I don't even know him. I can't vouch for him or against him. Like, I just don't know. And they're like, all right, fair enough. And that's what your uncle said about you. That's what my uncle said about me. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fair. I mean, it's true. Like I, I literally hadn't seen him since I was six years old. Yeah. Um, so it made sense, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Honestly, it just, I, I seeing the caliber of people that they hired after me, I think that I was probably one of their top prospects, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and what kind of, what kind of responsibilities did you have there? Uh, starting out as a laborer, like 
really no responsibility so it, like none no no major responsibilities right my job description basically was to check grade for the people in the machines and to hand dig around in utilities and to like fine-tune grade with a rake by hand so i was doing all of the the hand grunt work for about the first year right and then after that did you start moving up in responsibility mm -hmm. so after about a year and a half, I actually went from being a laborer to being basically a foreman. Um, they they just sent me around on a bunch of miscellaneous tasks by myself with like one or two guys to, you know, like grade a driveway or to like I did a sidewalk down by the library, stuff like that. Um, and then eventually they gave me a work truck and sent me to one of the biggest jobs that they had. And I was one of two foremans running like four to six crews at any given time for another about a year after that. And what, like, did they just one day, did it build up, like going from labor to foreman seems like a pretty abrupt change. Did you like know it was coming and they were like kind of grooming you for it or? Not even a little bit. This seems <clears throat> to be the story of my life. For some reason, people just like throw me to the wolves with everything. And so, uh, yeah, I, Literally just one day, the operations manager, Bill, called me up was like, hey, I got this uh, loading dock that needs to be graded up at Cardinal Glass. You're, you're going to meet Tyrell out there, and you're going to make sure it gets done. I was like, okay. And so I, I met Tyrell out there, and then Nick, a project manager, came out, and he's like, here's the drawing. You know how to read it? And I was like, yeah. He's like, cool. Have fun. And that was that. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess we're going to set up a string line and grade this thing out. And I did, and it worked. And then... Um, what do we do next? Oh, the, the, the next thing was the, the sidewalk down at the library. And so this one kind of pissed me off because Nick, the, the project manager guy, um, he, he's the one that was like, hey, I have this sidewalk that needs to be tore out and, and prepped for Shoebox to come in and, and pour it. I was like, okay, cool. And he's like, I'll be there with you all day. So like, it's going to be fine. Because it's like in the middle of downtown Hood River. It's like a pretty stressful place to be doing excavation work, you know? Right. And I was like, all right, great. And so we get there and... He shows me the drawing and he's like, this is what needs to happen. And he's like, it's already cut and everything. You just have to pull it out and regrade it. And he's like, we have a CAD truck already scheduled to be here. So basically he gave me this deadline where like I had to have the concrete tore out by two o'clock and we had to have it graded by five. <laughs> so I have no other options because we, we only had the parking for a day and, and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, cool. Well, it's a good thing you're going to be here. Then he's like, actually, I have a couple meetings I have to go to, but you got this, right? And I was like, yeah, I guess, I guess. And so do you think he was taking advantage of you or? No, I, <clears throat> I think, I think that he had like great confidence that I would be able to do it. And I mean, I knew I could do it too, you know? So I, I don't, th th I don't think there was much worry that I wouldn't be able to accomplish the task. And I think that that was kind of a test to, in, in his mind to see if I could handle like kind of getting blindsided like that. Cause that's a really important skill to have in construction is the ability to just adjust on the fly because shit never works out like the drawings say they're supposed to work out ever. Right. It's just not the way the world works, you know? Right. So, um, yeah. Were, I, were there other projects like that that where they kept on before this, this, they put you on their biggest project? Um, yeah. So I went and finished up some utility keep, work in, keep the mic close. Oh, sorry. I went and finished up some utility work in Odell at a subdivision there. And then I did, um, some like drainage work up at Kingsley Reservoir. And then they sent me over to their top secret big job site in the Dallas. And I was there for the rest of my time at Crestline.
And up in Odell and Kingsley, you were like foreman on those operations? Yeah. So right before the, oh, there was one little like little side project <clears throat> thing in between the the sidewalk and um Kingsley. So basically sorry. Um we we had like a little lull in work for a week and the owner wanted some planter boxes in his garden. And he knew that I had some carpentry experience. And so he was like, hey, I need you to build me these boxes. And I was like, all right, cool. So they paid me to do that. <laughs> and um, the, the way I actually got my truck, my, my work truck from them, uh, was I pulled up one morning and Eric, the, the general manager at Crestline, walks out and he's like, where's your truck? I was like, I just got out of my truck, dude. He's like, no, your, your, your company truck. I was like, you guys haven't given me a company truck. Why would I have a company truck? And he's like, that's bullshit. I'm calling Bill right now. And then so like he he's like, come up with the material list. Come meet me in the Dalles, and I'll, uh, we'll pick up your truck, and we'll bring it back. And you drive that from now on to work. And I was like, why? Why do I need a company truck? Like I, I still at this point had no idea that I was a foreman. And um, this, this is when you're on the big project? No, this is before that. So this is between the sidewalk at the library and the drainage work up at Kingsley. Okay. And... Yeah, I just he just like randomly wanted to give me a work truck, and I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. What's going on? You know, and then yeah, so that happened. I did the Kingsley work, and then when they brought me to the the big project, I had to go to a couple of meetings and stuff, and, and then I finally walked into Bill's office, and I was like, Hey, man, like what, what is this? And he's like, You have a company truck, and you perform miscellaneous tasks as needed. And I was like, So is that the definition of a foreman? And he's like, you have a work truck. And you was like, no, 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 no. We need to put a label on this because if I am taking on the responsibility of foreman, you need to pay me more freaking money <laughs> because labor wages for the response. Like, well, you get a work truck and you get free fuel. And I'm like, yeah, so I'm responsible for $30,000 worth of your tools now. Yeah. Great. That's such a help for me. <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm responsible for <clears throat> completing the tasks that you seek out for your business to make money. So yeah, that's definitely a benefit for me. And uh, so that was how I like negotiated my raise and, with them. And, and did he, <clears throat> was that the first raise you got? And did he give it to you like full foreman? Yeah. Yeah. Rate? Which it, it wasn't, in my opinion, it wasn't a fair wage for a foreman. Um, but considering my experience being in that position, it was fair for the time. Right. Yeah. But it, so it sounds like they kind of, they knew that you were skilled beyond, you punched above your weight class. Mm-hmm. And they weren't really taking advantage of you because it's not like you were like five, ten years of experience. Right. But you could do the the higher level jobs that they needed done. So they had you do them. And then eventually they kind of had to cave and, and pay you what you deserved. Yeah. Do you think that there was like a was there like a um, did they all know what was going on? Like this project manager guy, he's sending you like. Oh, yeah, for sure. They were all talking about it behind the scenes and laughing the whole time, I'm sure. Okay, so they were like, yeah. all right, we're just going to have him start being a foreman and then see if he can do it, and then eventually we'll just, like, make it official. Yeah. We'll kind of... Yeah, I'm sure they were they were short on management, like, like having foreman on the, on the team, and I just happened to be one of the people, which is the way I've always been, where, like, just you tell me to do something and I'm just going to go make sure it happens, and I don't need you to hold my hand through the process. You know, if I have a question, I'll call and ask, but, like, I can probably figure it out. And I think jujitsu actually has taught me that skill to, mm -hmm. to just like problem solve on the fly under stress. You know, that's, it's a very valuable skill in the sport of jujitsu. So it translates to life really well. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was going to say that's almost like an alternate definition for jujitsu yeah. problem solve under stress yeah. on the fly. <laughs> um, 
what what do you think is like the big, the biggest thing or, or what was the hardest thing that you had to overcome while you were working at Crestline either before you were on the big job or, or after you were on the big job mm, the hardest thing i had to overcome pertaining to work Te tech yeah yeah like um that's a good question i think the the insecurity of my own incompetence right so you know before starting working at crestline a year and a half prior i had literally never even seen an excavator in person and now all of a sudden i'm like responsible for both operating and manage people operating these like you know 150 to 300 thousand dollar machines around other equipment that costs equally as much around buildings that could be destroyed and and like you know coordinating dump trucks and material deliveries and, and all of this kind of stuff and i wasn't very confident in my ability to do that i hadn't had much experience in it so i think that the hardest thing i had to overcome was the the confidence factor how did you handle that did you ask for help or did you just get in over your head and just kind of fail along the way or all of the above i asked for help when i was like absolutely down and out i definitely failed quite a few times and messed things up i think i i also just for the most part would suck it up and improvise and just figure it out i'm like there's got to be a youtube video somewhere or something you know so i i like would go home and like stress over these these things i had to get done the next day and watch youtube videos on it and figure it out and yeah it was just i don't know what were some of the was there any big failures um i think honestly the biggest one which wasn't even that big of a deal looking back on it, it was pretty chill like it wasn't that crazy the the biggest failure though um would have been i took down a phone line down by the in situ building here in hood river um we were regrading this little parking lot and we were in like the final 30 minutes where i'm just like backblading my way out to keep it clean and i wasn't paying attention and the boom of the excavator was up and i clipped a phone line and tore it down i just like popped the tensioner it wasn't even anything crazy and i was like <laughs> ah damn it and so i called called my project manager i was like hey man i just tore down a phone line you know he's but, like all right but all you did is hit the tensioner that holds the pull up uh that, that holds the line on the pole so oh, it keeps the tension on the line so it right. keeps it up and, and then so, there's like a little bit of slack yeah so I, I hit that slack piece and it popped it off the tensioner oh and so the line dropped to the ground and it was just a phone line that the building didn't even use anyway like there was no okay. phone service to the building so it really didn't matter but um anytime you hit any type of a like what would be considered a public utility in in that industry it's uh it's kind of a big deal so i had to like go take a drug test and do all that kind of stuff and that was the first like red mark on my record you know with them but other than that nothing crazy happened interestingly that wasn't even that was just like a fluke accident mm -hmm. it wasn't even like a project like one of these projects that you you weren't even stressing over that right well, at the time <laughs> i was really stressed over that phone line though yeah yeah so, I, it was it, looking like hindsight 2020 it wasn't that big of a deal but that was the first time i'd ever hit anything and i i had, had even ever been around a utility that had been hit I didn't know if it was power. I didn't know if it, I, I had no idea what it even was that I had hit at the time. Um, and it took me a while to figure out that it was a phone line. Um, so like, you know, initially I'm like, oh shit, I can't even get out of the machine because if I jump down to the ground, it arcs and hits me because it's like the main power feeding the building, I might die, you know? And then I had to like tell everybody to stay away from me. And I was like kind of panicking, trying to figure out what's going on. 
but then you know as time went on and it unfolded i figured out that it like wasn't that big of a deal and i ended up just like running over uh century link was like right next door mm. and i watched one of the trucks drive down to park for the end of the day and i like chased him down and got him to just like pop up and put the line back up it took him like 10 minutes it wasn't the big deal uh yeah i i guess when i said not stressing i meant this wasn't one of those things that you were stressing at at night oh, no. projecting forward this this wasn't even the thing that you were fearing it's like it's just a fluke accident and right. that's what ended up being the big failure but the things that you were stressing over sounds like all in all it went pretty well it's not like yeah. it was mostly just your fear and over overcoming that would you say that's true it was just all in your own head yeah yeah 100 percent of it uh there was one project that i did in cascade locks this parking lot that for the longest time they let me think it was my mistake um but what happened is the guy that bid the job he uh, so I think what they do is they go on like Google Maps and they trace it out on their uh, their like CAD program and that's how they get like square footage for things. And I think he had his scale set wrong. And so like I, I was using like five times the amount of gravel that like the the, the uh, drawings called for for this parking lot. And I'm like, why the fuck? Like I didn't dig any deeper than it said. Everything was on GPS. Like everything was dialed and they were just like on my ass about how much money I was losing them on this job. And I'm like, I don't know what you want me to do. We have to put the gravel down and like, I'm already skimping as it is and we're still over. So might as well just do it right. You know? And when the paver showed up and he did his walk around, he came up with a number and I was like, that sounds way higher than what I saw in the drawings. And I went back and I was like, let's rewalk that. And, and sure enough, like he had, I think it was like off by a, like a factor of 10. So it was like 10 times larger than what he had bid it for. Right. And so for like a month, they were just like yelling and screaming at me because I was losing the money. And then finally, I was like, I think this is what the drawing says, and this is not accurate. And I sent them the numbers. And so it ended up being uh, this guy Yanni's fault. He, he like totally fucked up on the bid. <laughs> <laughs> and so that that was relieved off my shoulders at that point. But right. for about a month, that was pretty stressful where I was like, oh, man, I'm just like screwing everything up, you know? Mm. So did you used to, as a foreman, you had people under you, you had, you were responsible for people, right? Was mm -hmm. that hard to be a leader, especially being so young? Yeah, I think it was, I, I was really blessed because a lot of the people actually ended up being older than me. And so what was cool about that is they didn't even want to be foreman. A lot of those guys, they just wanted to like clock in, clock out. They didn't want any responsibility. They just want to show up and sit in their machine and do their work. And, but they, they had a lot of experience. So right. on most jobs that I was on, I was able to just be like, hey, what would you do here? Right. Like, you know, what would you do if this happened? How would you handle this? And a lot of times they'd be like, ah, do it like this. I'm like, cool, do it that way. Right. You know, so like I basically let them lead the job. I was just like the catalyst for that. I'm like right. picking their brain. And then that was what I went with. Right. You put your name on the line, but yeah, you, yeah, that's pretty interesting because had it not been that way, it probably would have been a different story, right? If you had a, if you had a young team, if everyone had less experience than you, which is interesting because if I... I was thinking that a foreman would be like the most experienced guy, but it's kind of just a different guy, right? Yeah. It's the guy that's looking at the whole project. Yeah. He's not, he's not like, yeah, he understands all the minute details, but he's not concerned. He's telling someone else to make sure the gravel gets laid down in the right amount. He's not always doing all these things himself. He's just looking at the whole project and making sure it's all going to fit together and right. be on time kind of a thing. Yeah. Yeah, so you're just like managing everything, making sure that everything goes smoothly, putting out fires as they appear, and dealing with any obstacles that, that pop up into your way.
And then above you, are you interfacing with like the project manager? And the so depending on the project, sometimes it's the project manager, sometimes it's the superintendent, depending on like the scale of the project. Um, and then sometimes it's also like the customers as well as a foreman. Sometimes you're dealing with with the client that you're working for. Mm. Yeah. So if you're at like a house, right? If it's like a residential project, you're probably going to deal with like the homeowner every once in a while as a foreman. Um, if you're on like a big commercial project, probably not going to deal with the owner of the the commercial place, but you'll deal with the general contractor, uh, and then the general contractor will deal with the client in those cases. Right. And how long? So you did that for like three years, and then and were you training jujitsu that that whole time in Hood River? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where were you training at at that time? Uh, so when Alex had it, it was called First Light Academy. And the gym, when I first started, we moved quite a few times, the building, but it was mostly in Hood River, for in, in Mosier for probably like eight months. Okay. Mostly yeah. in Mosier. It was also in like a church downtown, wasn't it? Yeah, where the bouldering gym is, Brimstone. I always try and imagine a jiu-jitsu gym there and I can't quite do it. It was pretty badass, honestly. <laughs> it was really cool because like all the evening classes and you'd have like the sun setting and the stained glass windows and it was, it was, it was really sweet. I liked it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And... So you were doing jujitsu the whole time, and then at some point you left Crestline and took over the gym. I started coaching for Alex initially. Oh, so you left Crestline to start working as a coach as your only job? Uh, yeah. So I was doing some like basic labor work for this contractor in town. Like I, w- I would work for like under the table whenever he needed me on the side, but mostly coaching jujitsu for Alex. Hmm. And how long were you coaching for? Hmm. Probably about eight months. Eight months of coaching? Yeah. I had been coaching prior to me quitting Crestline too. So I was teaching two classes a week while working at Crestline and then training every other day of the week under somebody else. Um, And then when I quit Crestline, I took over all the jiu-jitsu classes basically and redesigned the curriculum for Alex and... um, so from a jiu-jitsu career perspective, when you left Gracie Baja, mm-hmm. you came up here and you had three years training at Alex's gym, mm-hmm. and then you took over as head coach and were coaching all the classes, right? Mm-hmm. But you said your career was stagnant when you were at Gracie Baja. Were you already really good when you were at Gracie Baja? or like, I, mean, like- I was still not really good. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> here, being, around here, you're like a, I, you're a hero. <laughs> yeah. Being completely like completely honest though, understanding where I stand in the grand scheme of things, I'm a big fish in a little pond here. Um, and I would say I'm like a medium sized fish in a very tiny pond here. Right. Um, in, so I technically, I was a white belt when I moved up here. Um, so I had bounced around and, uh, just like hadn't gotten promoted and like went and won a couple tournaments at white belt and then finally alex was like dude you need your blue belt like this is stupid and so they gave me my blue belt and everybody was like fine like thank god you know and then uh like a year later uh michael chapman at impact in in beaverton he i went to samurai quite a few times out there which is a, a competition class it's typically purple belt and above but even as a blue belt i would go in there and like give everybody hell and just like have fun you know and he was finally like dude you need your purple belt this is stupid and so they gave me my purple belt and so that, they were they were affiliate because Impact is the gym you're currently affiliated with. Correct. And Alex was also affiliated. Alex was also affiliated. Gotcha. Yeah. Um. And so yeah, the Chapman gave me my purple belt, and uh, yeah, and so I basically within two years went from white to purple. But 
had like at the time that I got my purple belt, I had been training for like six or seven years, like probably six, um, which is like pretty average timeline right. to get a purple belt. So like I just spent a little extra time at white belt that may or may not have been necessary. And then they fast tracked me to purple from there. Once I finally found like a steady home of for jujitsu. Right. Yeah. So when you got here, would you say you were arguably at a blue belt level? I, I think objectively speaking, I think I was at a blue belt level for sure. Gotcha. So it wasn't like your jujitsu just leaped in three years no. from white to purple. It was just the belts caught up. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I've been notoriously underbelted in the past. And I think right now I'm maybe overbelted. <laughs> yeah. The jujitsu, the jujitsu speaks no lies, right? That's true. That's true. <laughs> I think most, I think most, a lot of people would argue against that statement, but, yeah. um, and then you were running the jujitsu curriculum and eventually you bought the gym. Is that right? Correct. What was that like? Scary. Why? Uh, because it was during the pandemic. Like the, the gym shut down in March of 2020. Um, just like everything else did, you know? And we were doing, we did like some online stuff for a little while where we would just do like these little powwows on Zoom and do like match breakdowns and stuff like that. And just like bullshit because we were all friends, you know, so just we, we all wanted to just like hang out. And um, so we did that. And then as time went on, Alex just couldn't or didn't want to deal with the overhead of the academy with having no paying members and whatnot. So he called me one day. Um, when I was going to visit my cousin was like, Hey, I, I think I'm going to shut the gym down. Like, I don't, I don't know if I can stay in this. I don't know if I even want to try anymore. Um, unless you were interested in like buying it from me. And I was like, fuck it, let's do it. And that was in August of 2020 or July is when he called me. And then I bought it like the, the first of August. Uh, cause at that point I, you know, regardless of where you stand on the whole COVID thing, that's neither here nor there. But I, I, I wanted to just train, like I was over it at that point. I'm like, I, if that's what it takes to train i'm gonna buy the gym <laughs> basically yeah i was like I, I i just like am fiending to do jujitsu i felt like a freaking meth head without their fix you know and so i was like yeah i'm just gonna buy it and i'm gonna open up and we're just gonna do jujitsu and like maybe we go to jail fuck it and um that's that's what happened i bought the gym and i opened it up and and yeah. did you have did you have customers the day you opened up or like like five <laughs> not not even enough to pay the bills yeah like, right. it, it was horrible and how long did it take before you had five more? Uh, I would say I hit 15 in November of 2020. So from August to November to hit 15. Was that, were those months scary? Where yeah. it was like, I thought 50 people were going to show up out of the blue. And <laughs> I never even had that expectation because we only had like 60 members prior to the pandemic. 16? 60. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like 50 was you know close to what our peak was at the time, or maybe it was 70, something like that. But it wasn't that many. And that was all adults? uh adults and kids oh you did have kids mm -hmm. yeah okay. they had a kids program and so yeah it, honestly it was more than i expected because of the pandemic like i i never really intended to make the gym my sole source of income but you know obviously i thought it would be awesome but like that i didn't think that that was a possibility when i when even I when you were buying the gym yeah you thought it was kind of a temporary thing to get it back on its feet and then you'd go back to construction I just thought it was like the only way that I was going to avoid driving to Portland to train 
how you ate food was not important. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah, I don't know. Because I, I, I had a contractor's license and I was doing that on the side too during the pandemic. Um, so I was making good money doing that. And so like, it didn't really matter. You know, the overhead was pretty cheap at the other building. It was like 1500 bucks a month. And I was like, I can, I can front that for a while. Uh, um, right. So when you bought the gym, you were in like during the whole pandemic thing, doing the online classes, you were working on the side, making money mm-hmm. as a contractor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. And, and then, you know, when I bought the gym, my biggest thing was like, if I can just get it to where it breaks, even that means I basically get to train for free and I'm good with that. Right. And that was like really my only ambition for the gym was to just make it break even so that I didn't have to drive to Portland every day to train. <laughs> so before Alex called you to, to ask if you wanted to buy the business, had you ever thought about owning a gym? For sure. It was definitely on like my dream list. Okay. Right. Because I've always been obsessed with jujitsu. And I remember when I first started training um, down in Louisiana, I would like watch my coaches. I'm like, man, that just looks like the, the you know, they're just like living the life. They're living the dream, you know? Mm. And uh, I just always wanted to do that, but never saw a clear path to that that place in life right and then all of a sudden it just kind of fell in my lap and was like okay we'll see what happens and then so by november you had 15 members and at this point you're still what was it like doing it during covid because it was kind of not it was kind of gray area that you were operating in oh it was totally in the black we were not supposed to be open (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah um so that was probably hard to get new members, right? Because you can't exactly go tell people that they should come in. Exactly. Because you're running, running a, in, like a, basically spe- fight a, speakeasy, a speakeasy gym. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it was really interesting. I had this, this really interesting way of accumulating members where you would go to the website. So, like, one, I, I like, canceled all the SEOs. I canceled, like, every, every marketing and promotion thing that had to do with the gym. I shut all of it down. We were not advertising that we even like existed. Like right. I, to find us, you had to like really want to do jujitsu. Right. And so I did that. And then I had it set up where you would schedule a time for me to call you. Right. To like kind of vet you over the phone. And then if you've passed that screening, there we would set up a time for you to come into the gym in person one on one with me right for me to vet you even further and then if you pass that you are welcome to the club and and so it, it was like a discovery call and a discovery session um in order to to join and and then you know as a when we were doing group classes we first tried I set it up kind of like uh, the the dance regulations were um structured in the whole covid like outline and so basically what we did is you would walk in with a mask on, you would check in to sign in. So we like contact tracing, doing all that stuff. And then I had uh, six big squares taped out on the map and you were allowed to take off your mask as long as you were in your square with your partner that you pre-registered for class with. So like you had to walk in with the person that you were going to train with at that class. And you were only allowed to train with that one person. You weren't allowed to to spar with everybody or to drill with anybody. It was like only that that one person. Right. Um, and that lasted for like two weeks and everybody's like, dude, fuck this. Like we just want to do jujitsu. And I was like, all right, I'm down. So we just did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I was gonna ask something because that's just such a wild concept to like that idea of I'm trying to get my head around what that would be like. Cause... It is horrible. <laughs> yeah. So how long was it before you broke even? Like kind of, you know, on average, sure, you had months up and down probably, but I'd say like eight to 10 months, probably. 
That's not, that's not too bad. I mean, especially when you consider it's during a pandemic. It's yeah, like... I mean, if, if you really want to, like, get technical, the, the business technically made profit in my first year in business. Um, not a lot. I think it made, like, $10,000 in profit like or something in, like, like that. Paying, like, paying back your initial investment. You no, in, like... Um, Money in, money out. Oh, just monthly cash flow. You were cash flow positive. Yeah, gotcha. for like two months out of the first year. Gotcha. Um, but that is not counting the debt that the business was technically in from my owner investment right. into the business. So the business still owed me like $20,000 or something like that. Right. Yeah. So pretty quick, you were cash flow positive. Soon, eight months in, you were mm-hmm. kind of paid off your initial investment. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you were probably feeling pretty good. Yeah, it's like, business, right, well, this right? is working out the way I wanted it to. Right. Yeah. And did you still have to contract for a while to keep covering the bills? Uh, to cover my personal bills, yeah. So the the transition from um, contracting and running the gym to just running the gym happened by, uh, I took like two weeks off of my, like I had like a lull in work. Um, there was just like this weird transitionary period where I was waiting on some materials to start this next job. So I was like, oh, I'll just like take a couple weeks off and go tidy up some stuff around the gym, do some trim work, like do some new flooring and lights and stuff like that. And uh, in that two weeks I opened up. So I was still doing, we, we were past the, uh, the like strict lockdown at that point. Um, so I was no longer doing the discovery calls. It was just sessions, which I still do to this day. I think I just think they're great. Um, but I opened up my calendar for discovery sessions during those two weeks. Cause I was like, well, if I'm here, I might as well like, you know, be open for people to come in and try it out if they want. And within those two weeks, I signed up like 30 people. So I basically doubled our membership in two weeks. and was like, whoa, that's, that's strange. And so I was like, I'm going to take one more week off and see what happens. And there was like another 10. And I was like, I just like came to the realization that the biggest reason the gym wasn't growing is because I wasn't like, I had placed this barrier for people to join in, in being the discovery session. So like you had to do this to be able to join. And right. then I wasn't available for discovery sessions during any convenient times for anybody. Right. So a lot of people wanted to do it. They just like couldn't, you know, staple me down to, to do a discovery session. And when I came to that realization, I was like, fuck it. I'm just like, I canceled the rest of my jobs. Like, sorry, I'm going out of business and just like dove into this. And I've been doing the gym thing ever since. That's pretty surprising. That's not your typical story of entrepreneurship. Like, hey, you just got to show up and your business is going to grow. Like you were the bottleneck. You were to, like, yeah. not even just like you couldn't get the shit done. You just didn't even realize that you had business. Like you didn't realize you had customers knocking on the door. Right. And once you made that change, things have, I mean, it seems like, I guess I'm, I know the story so well from around this point, but it seems like things have, I mean, I guess, I guess things started growing quickly, right? Mm-hmm. You expanded significantly there. And then I guess it was about a year later that you expanded into the new space that we're currently recording this podcast from. Is that right? It was about a year from that, like when you had that yeah. realization yeah. of maybe it was. It was like right out of year. Cause that was in like October of 2021 when i quit contracting and went full-time at the gym and then we moved into this building in august of 2022 Mm, right and what's it what's it been like moving into this this new space crazy how'd you how'd you come upon it uh so i just knew somebody that knew somebody that knew somebody that 
that heard that like one of the bays was going to be available for rent soon. And then I reached out to the building owner because I thought that the bays were bigger than they were. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that'd be great, you know? And um, yeah, and then it just turned into like it blossomed into me taking over the entire building <laughs> mm. somehow. Interesting. So it was off the market. You heard about it through back networks. You didn't think it was going to be big. Well, I guess you thought it was going to be big enough, but it turned out being way bigger than it was. And like they just hadn't, you just hadn't heard correctly or something. Well, so it ended up being, mind, it was initially smaller than I thought it was. And then turned out being like three times bigger than I could have imagined. Like, right. So the, the way this building is structured, um, where the, the actual mat space is, is like a shop space. And originally this is a movie theater. So that was the movie theater, like the indoor seating portion. And, um, and the, that, that was the outdoor drive-in movie theater, right? Correct. Yeah. Where that building <laughs> is right there was where the screen was. And so all the cars would be parked out here. And like where we're sitting here was probably just like a back office. Right. Um, and, and out to the, the left over here was where like all the concessions were. And so long story short, a bunch of people had bought and sold the building since it was a movie theater. And in that process, somebody put in some garage doors so they could park cars in here and whatnot. It became like a chemical storage place at one point. And then when this guy took it over, he built a wall to separate the the gym space into two separate garage bays because mm. there are two roll-up garage doors out right. there. And so um, when I when I first came in, only one of those two bays was up for rent or like it was going to be up for available soon. And then just in talking to the building owner, I was like, well, what about the other bay? And he's like, oh, actually, that guy's on like a month-to-month contract, and he's got his own building over here, so he could probably get out like any time. Like I told him if anybody wanted the building that I would, I would kick him out. I was like, oh, so then like I can have that then. He's like, yeah. I was like, okay, cool. Like, what about those offices? And he was like, oh, that's like my business that I'm about to shut down. I was like, so technically I could take that over too, right? And he's like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I was like, cool. It's settled then. I'm going to take the whole building. <laughs> that's awesome yeah and so you only so the mat space is is uh a little bit bigger than the old gym like double right so double but the mat space pretty much takes up the entire garage space Mm -hmm. and then you've got these back offices and all this here and what kind of uh like build out did you have to do was it just like lay the mats down on the floor and yeah start rolling no no, uh, so the move itself was a total shit show. Um, the the whole lease situation at the other building was like super weird and complicated and sketchy, and, and it just ended up not working out. So initially, when we moved, like before we moved in, I had every intention of doing all the construction prior to bringing the mats over here and like uh, initiating classes in this space, but it didn't work out that way. So we actually moved into half of the current gym space into the single bay. So that big wall was still there. And so to, to build out the place, I had to, while running classes during the week, shut down classes on the, like the open mats on the weekend and tear out the wall. So the, the first weekend of construction was tearing out that massive wall. Um, and so we have, you know, what, 24 foot ceilings in the gym and it's like 43 feet long. So it was a 24 by 43 foot wall that we had to tear down with drywall on both sides. It was insulated. And so tore that out. And then built the border, like the little four-foot border walls for the gym, or for the mat space, rather. Um, So that was one weekend, tear that big wall down, build those side walls, and lay the mats down. And then we had a competition the following weekend, and then so the the second weekend, 
um, came in and tore all the mats back up, built the subfloor. So we had that floating floor on the, the foam cubes, did all the OSB and everything, and then um, put all the mats back down and then put up the wall mats as well. So I wanted to wait for the subfloor to be built to do the wall mats because I wasn't exactly sure how high the mats would be on those walls. Mm. I didn't want there to be like a massive gap. And then once the mat space was pretty dialed, um, I was able to come back into the back here and build out the changing rooms and frame in the sauna and the storage closet and put all the carpet down and all that stuff. And what you were doing classes the whole time as well, like like at, initially at the old gym, and then you quickly transitioned to doing the classes here while you were building, right? I wasn't training at the time, so I wasn't... Oh, yeah, we moved in here in one weekend. So I, I basically, for like a month i canceled the weekend open mats and so we moved in here so we, we transitioned we had like finished thursday class at the other gym and then friday um i moved every like friday saturday sunday moved everything over here got it all set up had had help from some of the guys from the gym a couple like probably four people showed up and helped move all the stuff got that all set up and cleaned up and then resumed classes monday and then for the next few weekends we would shut down for the weekend i would pull all the mats back do construction work put them all back down that had to have been exhausting yeah it wasn't great <laughs> it's worth it though yeah cool yeah. man and then so now you've got all this extra space mm -hmm. what are you going to do with it the offices back here yeah yeah the offices yeah i mean yeah the offices and there's a little bit of space upstairs but i don't think that's it's kind of dead space yeah yeah the, the there's like one point of entry an exit and it's not great yeah it's like the old projector room right so yeah it's kind of the spiral yeah. staircase you're not getting much up and down that so that's kind of dead space now but the initially uh our buddy michael had intended to uh he still intends to eventually start a like alternative style school and so the the whole premise behind like getting the whole building was was securing this extra space to potentially have a couple classrooms and, and run a school out of it um, and then, you know, he just got that new tech, new tech job a few months ago. And so the school's kind of gone on the back burner. And so like, I'm just stuck with a bunch of extra space that I'm not really sure of. And you're renting this room from me now. And, <laughs> uh, I actually, my electrician buddy might be interested in taking the, the rest of it over from, uh, Michael. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. He need, he wants like an office with a secretary. And so you, cause I know for a while, like, you were saying that you were kind of dreaming of making a kind of a sports complex with like, uh, what's the word? Not healing recovery, recovery center with like ice baths and pulsed electromagnetic field therapy and stuff like that. Is that kind of on your mind or is that more of just another dream? Just like jujitsu was not really on the front of your mind, just kind of like a dream. Like, Oh, that'd be cool. It's kind of a dream. I think, a lot has happened in the last two years like thinking of where the gym started to where it is today it's been like a crazy last two years and so i'm a little burnt out i'm not quite as ambitious as i have been in the past <clears throat> i'm taking i'm kind of coasting for a little bit right now full disclosure um but i do eventually one day uh, I, I intend on building it a little bit better and bigger and you know i'm always going to be improving it's never going to be like good enough right you know Kind of filling your own cup, though, kind of enjoying time. That sounds like a really fun, really nice spot to be in, to to be doing well, not feeling like you have to work your butt off all in every free moment you have and kind of enjoy 
do things outside the gym and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, it's so surprising that you like, you know, you weren't even thinking about buying a business actively and it kind of fell into your lap. I do wonder if that's like a, that's just kind of your, like, just like the, just like the foreman thing. It's like being, like everything. I'm, I, you know, do you think the, the recovery center is just going to like fall into your lap one day and you'll just be like, Oh, Whoa, here we go. <laughs> I don't know, man. I Within the last couple of years, I've started, I, I'm not necessarily a religious person or spiritual or whatever you want to call it, but I think that there's there's some weird energy out there and, and things just somehow work out for the best if, if you put that energy out there. Um, there were just like a, just a series of things that happened where I was just, you know, talking about it like, oh, that'd be really cool. You know, I'd really love the opportunity to do this thing. And then like, bam, there's the opportunity, you know, the sauna. For instance, at the other gym, I was like, for like six months, I was talking about to everybody how like, man, I just really want a sauna that'll fit in this room. And then like, I'm like scrolling <laughs> on When Facebook. he says this room, he's talking about a room that's like six by eight. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's I a found, tiny room. Yeah. It's, and, and with like a little two foot door. So it had to be like this perfectly built kit. And the, there's only one door to this room and the kit, like the door was on, it's a rectangular space with a rectangular sauna and the door's on the right side to open to where, right? Yeah. Like, it just like where it could not have happened per- more perfectly. And the dude lived three blocks away and helped me bring it to the gym. Like it, it like nine o'clock at night on a freaking Saturday, you know, like I was about to go on a date with my girlfriend. I was like, uh, I think I'm going to go buy the sauna. You can quit getting dressed. And it just like went and bought a sauna and it fit perfectly. And same thing where like this building that we're in right now, when I first bought the gym, there was a banner out front that said 6,000 square feet available for rent. And I was like, fuck, that'd be amazing. But there's no way. Like I just spent all the money on it. I could not afford this space, you know? And, but the whole time I was like, man, that building would be fucking awesome though. Like I just, I, I have this feeling about that building. And then you here mean, we that, that was, that was when? That you when said? I bought the gym. Oh, this back building, when you originally bought the gym. Yeah, gotcha. when I originally took over the gym, this building was up for lease. Mm. And I just wasn't in a position to be able to afford it. Right. But the entire time I had the gym, I was like, God, oh, that building would be sweet. And then, like, through this back channel, I found a third of it. And then, event, like, culminated that into, like, the whole thing for myself. Right. You just, know? And right. so now, like, I have the whole building. And it's, it's just a serious, like, same thing with owning a gym in general, you know, my whole life, I was like, that would be fucking awesome to own a jujitsu gym. And then like, here we are all of a sudden it lands in my lap and I don't know, it just happens that way. It's weird. Yeah. Hard not to be superstitious. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, I, I think that's, that's probably a good place to wrap up. Is there anywhere that you want people to be able to find you? Uh, you can check out our website at impactjudover.com. You can come do a discovery session or try some, try some jujitsu if you'd like. Our Instagram is at impacthoodriver and that's it. Cool. I highly recommend it. Uh, I've been training for around a year and a half, took a little time off, but I got to say it's between, I mean, the, 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 the sport itself is awesome, extremely demanding, forces you to grow as physically as an athlete, as well as mentally and as a person, but also the community is rivaled by none other. So thank you for what you've given me. And I know everyone else feels quite similarly. So thank you. Well, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Mean Mind, guys. And we look forward to bringing you more content soon. Be well. Mm-hmm.